Watt Bike has been at the heart of performance cycling at the very highest level since the year 2000. Fast forward to 2020, and the Watt Bike Atom, the first dedicated indoor smart bike, is available to buy in the US. With Bluetooth, Ant Plus, and FEC connectivity to the world's leading training and racing apps, real ride feel technology to mimic the feeling of riding on the road, and data accuracy of plus or minus 2% across the full power curve, the Watt Bike Atom is your perfect training partner all year round. For more information, visit wattbike.com slash US. And just like that, the Tour de France is over. After what was an incredible three weeks of racing, Bobby and I sit down to discuss our key points of the race and what the repercussions are for the remainder of the season. This week on Put Your Socks On. Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Angus Morton and as per usual, I am joined by Bobby J. Bobby, how you doing? I'm super, Gus. I mean, uh, what a crazy three weeks. It's just amazing how fast it goes. And now the Monday hangover after the Tour de France, you're sitting there like, wow, where did those last three weeks go? But for me, it was it was a great three weeks of racing. Obviously, affects the workflow a little bit because you spend so much time paying attention to this, talking about it, watching the highlights, studying the, the numbers and seeing what these guys are doing on the road. It, it was just... Uh, as good as it possibly could be, and possibly one of the best Tour de France's I've ever seen. I would have to agree. It was nonstop action and, and, and just unexpected uh, at the most unexpected moments, which I thought was, was fantastic. And just to have the world's biggest bike race on every day was an absolute treat. So it is a little strange, Monday morning rolling around and nothing really to do except for that mountain of work that, <laughs> that I've been putting off. Uh, or doing, you know, in a half-assed way over the last three weeks. Now, I know our show, we have focused on stuff happening and or characters happening around the Tour de France and with relationship to the race, but not directly this year. That said, as you just highlighted, we have been paying very close attention to the race. At times, such intense focus that it does feel, feel a little bit like work. And so, I thought this week would be good to to just sit down and, and talk about what was a, a really amazing race and kind of, I guess, with 24 hours of, uh, of time to, to, to kind of process everything, get your thoughts on what happened in the race, the most important moments, the most interesting things, and, you know, how that points uh, towards the remainder of the season and, of course, you know, 2021. Yeah, I think as a whole, the, the Tour de France was a major success. The kind of key talking points that that I took from that was a number one that with the COVID protocols put in place they actually worked and we we had a race that that made it to Paris which at the beginning of the race we were a little bit worried would would never happen it was definitely touch and go I don't think anybody would have put their hand in the fire and said that it was going to happen but they did something right all the protocols the bubble the professionalism of the riders and the staff I must say. I was a little bit nervous when on the mountain stages, there were so many people on the side of the road. Obviously, that didn't turn out to be um, an issue. The other thing was I was a little bit worried about the weather. You know, in July, the weather can be crappy. 
But outside of that first stage in Nice, and it kind of was a little bit of foreshadowing, like when everybody was crashing and it was crappy weather in one of the most beautiful, sunny areas of France, that, you know, is this the way the tour is going to be? Is it just going to be a nightmare? But after that first stage, they had beautiful weather, which definitely for September was was great. And then I don't think we can go very far without just talking about the young riders and how much of an impact they had in the racing. We saw guys make their names for themselves. You know, Mark Hershey, uh, Martinez, Kemna, Soren Craw Anderson, you know, the, the list goes on and on. Uh, Walt Van Aert. I mean, these are, these are people that took advantage of the opportunity that was laid in front of them. Obviously, this was a very special season. And these guys, man, they, uh, they came out shining. That's for sure. Obviously, you know, th- there was a lot of discussion around Team Ineos Grenadier's team selection. But let's just cap that right away. Like hindsight's 2020. Dave and that team is one of the most meticulous attention to detail oriented teams around. And you make a decision and you live with the consequences. And obviously, you know, the, con- the, it didn't work out. And there's, I don't think anybody can put their finger on, on one thing, but you know, you just got to imagine that this is not going to happen again. Dave and his team will go back into the back to the drawing board and really right the wrongs because they they know what they're doing. This was just maybe a little bit of an off year. The other thing that stood out to me was just the tactics of the race that Jumbo Visma had. And I wasn't it looked familiar, right? It looked like US Postal Service, it looked like the Sky Ineos days and they kind of took over that role of doing the same thing, really controlling the race and and what what a ride those guys had. I mean, they spent so many kilometers on the front and they come away with nothing. But the more than the tactics is the race course because the tactics are going to be dictated by the course and the way the riders race it. And you didn't see so much aggressive riding from the GC contenders. They were kind of happy to sit back there and do that steady pace that Jumbo Visma was doing. So 2020, hindsight being 2020, we can sit back and say they made a mistake. But did they? I, I don't know. I think the only thing that could have made it a little bit different where guys would have had to been a little bit more aggressive is if they had more kilometers uh, in time trials, if they had a team time trial, if they had an individual time trial halfway through the race. We all knew that that time trial at the end would decide the race. And, you know, it, it just didn't work out for them. And they got nipped right there at the line by one of the most dominant performances I think we've seen in a while. Yeah, exactly right. And then obviously we saw the green jersey competition this year was much more of a fight than we've seen it for for many years. And that played out right through the end in what was a little bit of a fairy tale ending there for Sam Bennett. Well, not a little bit, an absolute fairy tale ending there for Sam Bennett with a win on the Champs-Élysées. The KOM jersey competition, a little strange, I thought. I want I want to go back to the green jersey competition for a second mm-hmm. because I have never seen a Tour de France where the tactics of the race were so dictated by the green jersey competition. I mean, Bora really made it difficult in quite a few of those stages. And that that was some excitement that we've never seen before. Like, when was the last time that that competition dictated the way that stages unfolded? So, you know, Sagan has always found a way. Obviously, this year he wasn't at his top level. He wasn't winning the sprints like he normally does or multiple stages. But uh, he he was going for that jersey. And the guys had to adapt. Uh, Sam Bennett, I mean, he suffered like never before. 
and came out of the tunnel and, like you said, a fairy tale ending, not only winning the green jersey, but winning on the Champs-Élysées in the green jersey, it, it doesn't get much better than that. The KOM competition, I'd have to say for the first you know two weeks, it was pretty boring, but it was boring because the way that the race was set up. Not that many big climbs at the beginning. The points were pretty small. That favored the breakaway. And Benoit Cosnefois, I mean, he just took advantage of the situation. And I know it was maybe boring and it wasn't fun watching uh, the best climber in the race actually get dropped on, on all the major climbs. But that kid just made his career. I mean, he was 15 days in the polka dot jersey in the Tour de France. I mean, he's going to be associated with those polka dots for, for years and years to come. So it's another, another example of somebody taking advantage of a situation and getting the best out of it. Sure, it wasn't, he wasn't the best climber, that was clear. But uh, that's some publicity that goes a long way uh, for himself and his team. And back in the 1996 Vuelta, I was in a similar situation. There was a couple Cat 3 climbs in the first stage or two, and then they were kind of spread out for the next week. And I, I held the white jersey, which was the climber's jersey in the Vuelta back then, for nine days. And to me, being in the first Grand Tour of my life and being able to hold that jersey, it meant a lot. I mean, I still have that white jersey framed, like hanging in my office, and it meant a lot. So although it wasn't majorly exciting, man, it lit up there at the end. And it came down to basically the, the, the time trial. And to be honest, I thought Carapaz would, would keep that jersey because really Tajay had to go full gas all the way up to the climb and then go full on the climb. And as we found out this year, and I believe it was the first time ever, they actually took the time of the climb mm. instead of the position that you finished in the overall GC. I, I'm not aware if that's ever happened before. I don't think it ever happened when I was racing, but that was, that was pretty cool. But all he had to do was really get to the bottom of the climb, switch bikes, and sprint up 6K when Pogachar had to basically do the whole thing. Turned out not mattering because there was no one that was going to beat him up that climb. And man, in the end, we have the best sprinter in the green jersey and the best climber in the polka dot jersey and obviously the best rider over the three weeks in the yellow. So for me, it was fantastically done. The crescendo could have not have been better. And all those competitions were were definitely went to the to the rider that earned it. We've got the note here, the best team in the race, Movistar. Uh, and you make a you, you made a good point. I would agree, almost forgot they were in the race this year. Um, which is, you know, I think it's a bit of a, a bit of a transition year for that team. They lost a lot of their star riders at the end of the season last year and Enrique Mass had a really good ride, I think. Uh, in the end, he he plugged away and 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 put himself inside the top five, which is amazing. But they didn't dominate the the attacking and 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 the aggression, which we've become so familiar with that team in uh, in the last several years. They they focused on that for a long time. I think they've won it multiple times over the last couple of years. But it it's sort of loses its luster a little bit to me when you barely see that team. I mean, obviously they had to be represented because it's the the top three cumulative time per stage of the top three riders of the team that goes to that that classification. But um, I don't really know if you go to the tour with that as your only objective. And even Eric Moss, yes, he, he did. He was there. We rarely saw him. He was always kind of just off the back of the best guys. And he plugged his way and wound up finishing fifth overall. So 
I guess in hindsight, you could say, no, we got fifth overall and won the team. But, you know, I would have rather have seen that more attacking style from those guys because they've won multiple stages in the past. But, you know, that that has got to be one of the most tactical outside of the general classification in the King of the Mountain and, and the green jersey competition. That probably has to be the most tactical one because you not only figuring the top guy, you have to figure the top three guys. Mm. And, you know, when you're in the breakaway, you're like, OK, we got three guys from this team and two guys from that team. OK, we're going to win the, the, the team classification for this stage. One of those things that when you do win it, it is pretty special. My team in 1998 won that title and it was pretty cool having all your teammates on the podium in Paris accepting that award at the end. We've covered those those sort of bigger moments of the race and those and those kind of key parts. I want to go a little bit more in depth into those parts for the next part of the episode and kind of get your opinion on how the race played out, some of the good features, some of the interesting features and and then how they're going to play out, I think, or how we see them playing out come next year's race. First and foremost, what did you think of the tour? Why why was it so good this year? What made it so good? I think that it was just the parody of the competition. You know, you didn't have a an obvious winner. I mean, Primoz Rolich was definitely the favorite, but everybody else kind of just stuck around and there was never that 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 kill shot. You know, you always saw in the past there's that one stage where the Tour de France is won. And this was just like death by a thousand cuts for the most part. I kind of looked at the overall classification before the final time trial and normally 57 seconds would have been enough, but I don't know if he was super comfortable with that lead. But to me, it was the overall effort in such a difficult time that everyone came together and realized, hey, this is a special time. We have to make some sacrifices. We all have to work together. We definitely have to look after our health. And the, the race was a success. I mean, seeing your race, your, your passion, your sport on live TV and being the only one in the world that has fans around, it was great to see. But the number of different races within a race that were going on was what made it so interesting to me in the end. There was always something happening. There was always some new rider that was coming out, getting back to the young riders. But, you know, when only 10 teams won stages out of 22... You know, there, there's a lot of teams that are shaking their heads saying, what what did we do wrong? How did we not prepare for this? Because when we had Bjarne Rieson, uh, who mm. is associated with the NTT team, you know, he said he wanted his riders to come out of the blocks flying. And they were very good on the Zwift races and stuff like that. But then, you know, we didn't really see so much of them in, in the Tour de France. So it was a very difficult season. I know there was a lot of planning that went into it. Some guys got it right. Some teams got it right. Some some got it wrong. And um, I don't think we talk so much about all the other efforts that were put in by the guys that didn't have their names in lights during this tour. But everybody that finished, that's that's something that they should be proud of. And you said something interesting there, right, which was every day there seemed to be something a little bit out of the ordinary happening. The way, like, whether whether it be the aggression of the racing, whether it be the the point within a stage where the race split up or, or, or the breakaway. And it just seemed there was always something going on. And as you said um, earlier on, right, like we saw the race for the green jersey really dictating and having an impact on the race for the yellow jersey and, and, and these bigger, longer, drawn-out competitions, right? Um, I want to know what you – do you think that was because there was less racing in the lead-up to the tour – and as a result, riders were more fresh, riders were more excited. Or do you think just it was 
that's just how racing is now. And what once was a US Postal or a Team Ineos that were just that much more dominant, they were able to control everything and everyone, but the other teams are kind of caught up now and these other races are able to play out because no one's really able to hang on. I mean, the Tour de France is a Super Bowl every day for 21 days. Uh, it's the biggest sporting event and everyone takes it seriously. So, you know, being fresh, you know, having it a full season behind you or just having a couple races like we had this year, I don't think it's going to change anything. But yes, the the riders, the teams, the the staff, everybody is looking at all that minutia, all those small details, and, and it's paying dividends and you're seeing better racing, more exciting racing. I don't know. We, you know, we said this all year last year and then at the start of, you know, this year, wow, the the, the riding is so much more dynamic. The racing is so much more dynamic. I think it just boils down to, you know, people are being more professional about this and the the wealth of talent is spread around so many teams that it's game on from the moment that flag drops to the end, every single stage. And especially this year, fatigue not being such a big part of it, I think was a major factor. Focus is the key to training, especially indoors, especially in the winter. You need to be single-minded in purpose to throw your leg over the trainer and hit your numbers day after day. This year, wouldn't it be nice if your indoor setup is as purposeful as your training? So here is the news that the Training Obsessed have been waiting for. The Watt Bike Adam is now available in the US. Born from a partnership with British Cycling, Watt Bike was the first dedicated smart bike to offer integration with third-party apps like Zwift, Trainer Road, Full Gas, and other leading training tools. With the real ride feel technology and a plus or minus 2% data accuracy across the power curve, you always have the perfect training partner. Get the purpose-built flagship of your pain cave at wattbike.com slash US. That's W-A-T-T bike.com forward slash U-S. And so with that, what was your favorite stage finish? Okay, I'm going to just take the time trial out of it because I'm biased. Yeah. And like that time trial to <laughs> me, man, I was glued to that. That's kind of a hard question. But outside of the amazing individual performances by some of the young guys, the stage where I was like, okay, this, this is a great stage of the tour was stage 17 when we saw a little bit of a change of tactic. Bahrain McLaren kind of just uh, shook things up a little bit by taking over the front and uh, making the pace on the climb uh, up to Col de Lowe's. That was like, oh, wow, something, something's different here than we've seen the last two weeks with, with Jumbo Visma just setting the tempo. And I think you know that my pick for the, the tour at the beginning was Mikael Landa. I really thought that there was going to be somebody outside of the Ineos Grenade camp and Jumbo Visma that would steal the show, and I was going for Mikael Landa. But when they got onto the lower slopes of the, the Col de Lowe's, the last climb of the day that day, and all of a sudden his teammate kind of slowed up and the guys started looking around at each other going, what, you know, what are we doing here? I knew that Landa didn't have it. But watching those guys go mano a mano and basically do an individual time trial up that last climb, Lopez, 15 seconds ahead of, of Rolich. Rolich, 15 seconds ahead of, of Pogachar. Pogachar, 15, 20 seconds ahead of Richie Port. Like that to me was like, okay, now there's no more teammates. It's the best guy all the way to the finish. So for me, outside of those individual performances as a whole, I thought that that was kind of like 
my favorite stages of the tour. For me, though, the stage that I that sticks in my mind at least was stage 19, Soren Krag Anderson. It was not as straightforward as the sprinting stage. Again, late in the race, quite twisty in that finale there, very up and down. But we saw Remy Kavanagh go off the front for 100K or so just solo, um, which I bet he was ruining that given the next day he was, was pretty pretty close to, to the time trial. But seeing the sprinters be so aggressive and that race split with you know only 30 or so K to go and, and, a, and a good group of, of guys going away. And then the timing of, of Soren's attack was just so spot on. It, was, it just reminded me of, of my very first coach, Graham Sears, used to always tell me uh, that you know when you're in a, you're in a small group, it's kind of hilly. You got to catch the other guys napping. You know, you got to hit them over the top of the of, of the climb. You got to and and it just like I could just hear my old coach's voice playing out in my head as I watched as I watched you know the tactics of of, of Sunweb and, and Soren Craig Anderson. And so to watch that and then to watch him ride that final couple of kilometers at like seventy kilometer an hour, seventy kilometers an hour coming down to the finish there. I just thought it was it was a very expert tactical race, and then obviously he had the legs to finish it off. Um, you know, I'm, really I'm going to have to go back and watch that one because that was, I, I hate to admit, that was the only stage that I didn't watch from start to finish. I mean, I went back and saw the highlights and, of course, saw the results. Mm. But uh, I had a a prior engagement and I've been told that that was a fantastic finish, you know, with yeah. him, with the all-star classic group with him and to just kick away like that. And the funny highlight that I saw was that he seemed to have lost communication with his team car. So he had no <laughs> idea. And, you know, a lot of the times, you know, that's that that reassurance, that that soothing voice telling you exactly what's going on. But like to see him like yelling at the motorbike cameraman, asking him, like, where are they? Like, am I going to win? Like, how far is it to go? Or what's the the time gap? That was that was kind of funny. So I wish I didn't miss that one because it did sound pretty fantastic. Absolutely. And then, you know, that's an example he he is an example of of a bit of a breakthrough performance in the Tour de France obviously Pogacar you know he's been around but to win the Tour de France but there are a number of big breakthrough performances this year in the Tour who for you what was what was that standout breakthrough for you um or or or, or can you not name one is there is there multiple it's it's very hard to to pull one breakthrough performance out because there was so many of them if i had to narrow it down I would have to say that Mark Hershey was the the real breakout performance because when he was going up the Col d'Az, bridging to Julian Alaphilippe, I was like, "Who's who's this kid?" Like I thought it was Nicholas Roach, and then all of a sudden, you know, Mark Hershey's name pops up, and him almost winning that sprint, and then having another chance in a breakaway, and I don't think there was anybody in the world that wasn't rooting for him to win. You know, when he was coming down, the, the, the GC favorites were closing in on him. It was a question, do you stop now and wait for the sprint or do you try to make it all the way to the finish? You know, he wound up getting third on that day. And then finally, you know, persistence pays off and he was able to win a stage. And so for me, overall, that was the best because that was three very, very important stages. And, you know, when he won stage 12, it was like you couldn't you couldn't be happier for the guy. But Soren Kraj Anderson, Walt Van Aert. I mean, the way that this guy was winning bunch kicks and then 
one of the last guys in a, in a very selective group of climbers. I mean, this guy weighs 10 kilos more than a lot of those guys, and he was able to do it. And then, you know, really strong ride in, in the time trial. Man, it's tough, but I would say it would be down to the two Sunweb riders. And when we had Matt Keenan on, remember, he, he was the one that was, you know, very complimentary to the way that, that Sunweb uh, was riding tactically and, you know, very, very smart. And it looked like, you know, maybe they weren't going to come out with anything, but they won stages 12, 14, and 19. So they really smoked that last um, 10 days of the tour. Yeah, I would agree. And Hershey's one of those riders. He reminded me um, a little bit in last year's Welter, there was the the rider for Lotto Sudal, um, the Danish rider Hagen. And like inside the top 10, I think he ended up finishing seventh maybe, but no one seemed to be talking about him, right? And I was... Watching the races in the lead up, watching the um, the Dauphiné, and and I kept seeing the Sunweb rider, and I'm like, I don't recognize the shape of that guy, and and also too thinking of the team, I'm like, no one, no one sort of jumps out at me um, as as to who who that would be, right? And I and I, I remember looking his name up on a couple of occasions because I'd look it up, and I'm like, oh, Mark Hershey, I've never heard of that guy, and then I would forget who it was, and I'd have to look it up a few days later when I saw him again, and so to see him, you know, as someone who's kind of been there but no one for whatever reason or another he was just a little too far back for people to be talking about him you know for him to go from 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 nobody really talking about him to you know one of the only guys that the guy that everybody's talking about as um as a really standout performance i thought for me yeah he 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 would have to be he would have to be the breakthrough on uh you mentioned uh the outstanding performance of what vanner of course Sepp Kuss in the same vein on that team, Tom DeMullen on that team. Like that entire team um, was was stacked and and rode fantastically. And I and I can't imagine what it would have been like if they had have added had have had the added firepower of, of Stefan Kreiswick on that team who unfortunately, you know, dislocated his shoulder before the race. But a team that strong, a team that's seemingly so in control, where did they lose the race? I think they lost the race when they had to put or Maybe didn't have to put Tom uh, Demolin, uh sacrifice his chances, but when when they took him, who was a you know obviously a favorite of the race, obviously riding well, and then he started to lose time. I think that they took their kind of ace in the hole and and threw it on the ground because that tactically could have been a different situation. But really, the way the race panned out, I would have been interested to see if they maybe looked after Sepp Kuss a little bit more. Like he he did crash. He he lost some time here and there. But like on the mountain stages, I mean he was he looked so amazing. So I, I just think that they didn't really know the arrows that they had in the quiver. And they were going for primos right from from the start. But um the thing that they the biggest mistake that they made, and this is all hindsight 2020, was never going after, never trying to isolate with the uh, the other you know, especially Pogachar or mm-hmm. Richie Port, because those guys were by themselves up there. If they could have done, if, if Walt Van Aert was as strong as we saw him, why didn't they send him up the road in one of those breakaways and then use him as a springboard when Rolich would attack? That, that I, I think they had so, they were so strong, but they never really moved out of that. Hey, we're just going to ride tempo. And then, you know, right at the end, Sep is going to take over and Primos is going to stay on his wheel. I think they could have been a little bit more creative there with their their tactics and putting guys up the road and uh, and giving that Primos like that that springboard to attack at the right time. And it seems as though they were following 
you know, you've already mentioned this, right? US Postal, Sky, Ineos sort of style where they basically, it's it's marginal gains, it's second tier there, but but they're just always in control. They've got this vice-like group. They've always got a few guys in that front group. You know, obviously we saw Team Ineos weren't anywhere near what they were like in, in the past. We saw, you know, teams like Bora Hansgrohe, you know, dictating the race for a whole different classification, right? I'm interested to know if you think that maybe what happened to Jumbo Visna is is more um, emblematic of of a change in the way that the, the tours race, that the way that the World Tour is raced nowadays. That it's not possible to just simply get your team on the front and and run a really sort of metronomic, you know, slow grinding down of of your opponents, and that you have to get more creative. Well, I don't think there's a problem with that as long as you put them to the sword at the end. And Primos really never attacked himself. You know, he was covering some moves and, you know, he was obviously strong, but you never saw him throw caution to the wind and say, I'm going to win the Tour de France on this day. It was more like, you know, just chipping away, staying, looking at, at your teammates. And I think, you know, Sepp was almost a little bit too good of a safety blanket for him. Like he always wanted to be like, I saw Sepp acting more like a team captain or a leader than Primos. Sepp kept coming up, always talking to him. And you're like, how is this guy talking when everybody's on their absolute limit? He looks like he's breathing, you know, through his nostrils. But, you know, having a teammate around like that makes you feel more comfortable. But like, if you want to win the tour, you do have to throw caution to the wind and and really try to win the tour instead of just trying to hold on to it. And, you know, they, they were amazingly strong. But I don't think that Primos, and this was one of the kind of knocks on him throughout his uh, career to date in Grand Tours, is that the third week is a struggle for him. And I'm not saying, I mean, obviously he was good. And in the time trial, everyone says he, he did a bad time trial. He finished fifth. You know, it wasn't that bad. It, you know, Tajay Pogacar just, you know, ripped the, the pedals off the cranks that day. But I, I would have to say to me that the team rode to the best of their abilities. They just lacked that killer instinct that a lot of those those winners of the Tour de France had. I would agree. It seemed as though they were they had such a strong team that maybe it was a bit of a false a false security there. Now you mentioned the last time trial. Obviously, that's that's literally where Tadek won the race. But you also mentioned he rarely had a team around him. You know, and obviously this race is twenty one stages long, right? He had nineteen stages up until that time trial to lose the race. So where where did he win the race? How does a guy that that had very limited team support, a lot of his riders crashed out, um, and and or, or weren't there in support roles? How how did he win? Where did he win? We all know that he won in the time trial, but I'm going to tell you where he didn't lose the tour. Number one was when he got caught out in the crosswinds. Mm-hmm. He he and Richie Port got caught out there. And instead of taking that as like, oh, my Tour de France is over, it almost seemed to motivate him more and actually gave him a little bit of um, leeway because when he did attack the next day and he took back 40 seconds in one chunk, it was like, wait a second, that's not a guy that's deflated. That's a fighter. That's a guy that is now clawing back every second he can. So that was super important from for a young rider and I know he has one of the best sport directors ever in Alan Piper, um, kept him calm, kept the team calm and just said, hey, listen, I'll, I'm going to take this back little by little. The other stage where really he won the tour or 
at least didn't lose the tour, was on the final climb, you know, that mano a mano battle that he had with with um, and, and, uh, Miguel Angel Lopez and, and Rolich. This was the first time in a while that he actually got dropped, mm. you know, or couldn't close a gap to somebody. So for him not to make a mistake there, not to mentally switch off, but to just go all the way to the finish with everything he had. He only wound up losing 15 seconds, but on that climb, if you crack mentally, you're losing minutes. And that, to me, right there, I was like, man, you know, he had 40-some seconds, and now Primos had 57. And I said, I would not be sleeping well if I was Primos Rolich going into that time trial because you didn't put him to the sword. When he showed a little bit of weakness, he was mature enough to just ride at his tempo and limit his losses, which is he did. He only wound up losing 15 seconds to to Rolich there. So those two days could have gone totally opposite, and we wouldn't mm-hmm. even be talking about him. But because of you know his maturity at such a young age, and the guidance that that his director sportif Alan Piper was giving him, and just the entire team, I'm sure you know we we didn't see so much of that team in the race, but in the bus. They, they had to have been supporting him 100%. So all respect due to that entire team, even if they didn't take many pulls on the front. Another performance really worth mentioning, which I don't know if you would call it a, a breakout performance, but Sam Bennett, you and I spoke last year watching the race play out, the sprint stages, and we were saying Sam Bennett should be here. And there was a lot of conversation going around it. Um, that dragged on into the Vuelta. He obviously had a very successful performance there. And, and we were talking, and he was, he, he was without a team, you know, the best sprinter in the world, unable to get a team. He was, you know, he was obviously in a tough situation and it was, and his sporting efforts weren't being allowed to, to dictate where he sits. We see him at the Tour de France in, in 2020 and what a remarkable ride. Two stage wins, the green jersey. What does a performance like that mean for him? What does that performance mean for someone like Sagan, who he was always playing second fiddle to on Bora? Um, and, is it a changing of the guard? I don't know. What are your thoughts on, on, on his ride? I can't say enough good things about Sam Bennett because he's one of the guys that has had to grind like year in, year out, good teams, bad teams. You know, last year being on Bora and having to play second fiddle to, to Sagan and he just kept going. He found a way to get out of the contract with Bora, went to one of the best sprint lead out teams of, you know, decades now with the coin at quick step and had to fight for this i mean yes sagan made some big mistakes there's no doubt about it especially when he got relegated and lost so many points there and then in one of the other stage finishes he he had a chance to take maximum points when the team put uh put sam off the back but sam is a grinder and i have to say i rarely get emotional when I'm watching a press conference after the the stage of somebody that I don't know personally and I don't know Sam personally. But the way that he opened up and the pure emotion came through, I mean, that's that was so many years of having to shovel crap and play second fiddle. And then, you know, he wins the stage, gets the green jersey, and it was Sagan and Bora Hansgrohe did not make it easy on him. And he had, for the first time, he really had to dig deep because like finishing inside the time limit, he was very close a couple of times of of missing that time cut. But the team was great around him. They always protected him. They always motivated him. And for, for him to finally put an end to the reign 
of Sagan's green jerseys was phenomenal. I don't see it happening for him for, you know, consecutive years. But hey, man, live in the moment. Enjoy the fruits of your labor. You earn this 100%. And being able to cap off probably, well, undoubtedly, the crown jewel of any sprinter to win on the Champs-Élysées and to do it in the green jersey, wow. I mean, so happy for the dude and, and you know, the, the sacrifices and the changes and the the tough times that he had to overcome. And I think that's why it was so emotional for him. So, man, great job. But there, you know, Sagan, I don't think is 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 done yet. But mm-hmm. um, now there's another guy that we get to talk about having a green jersey, which I think is great. You know, it was getting kind of boring, especially when Sagan would win by like 250 points. It was not even a, a competition. But it being that close made a very interesting uh, subplot in the race. Absolutely. And speaking of, of, of overcoming Richie Port, you know Richie Port well, obviously. He finally lives up to his potential at the Tour de France. We've seen him. It's his 10th Tour de France. But I feel like he's always been a bit of an outsider in that world. He's had amazing performances, finished fifth before. He's obviously ridden in service of many victors. But to see him finally get on the, the podium... What is that, you know, like, first of all, like, how did he do it? What seemed to have changed for him? Um, and, and what does that mean for a rider like him at this point in his career? Richie is, uh, yeah, I've known him a long time back since uh, Saxo Bank. And then I worked together with him at, at Team Sky as well. And what I saw this year was just a more mature rider. And you go back to that stage where Boca Molama crashed and broke his wrist and had to retire from the race. I actually said to myself, that's probably the best thing that could happen to uh, for, for Richie's overall general classification chances because he's always had he, he's always been a support rider and he's always gone to a, uh, a grand tour with with multiple um, options in that in that sense of the word. But I just saw a guy maturing and you know, maybe it was the birth of a second child, like right in the middle of the tour. And, you know, that's kind of funny. Like we all say, like, you got to plan those pregnancies so they don't happen in the month of July. And he nailed it. He didn't have the baby in the month of July, but the Tour de France got shifted. And, you know, just that whole team coming around him and him being finally getting through the tour unscathed. I mean, you, you look back at the worst crashes and Richie Port is right there at the top of the list in the Tour de France. I mean, he just had such terrible luck and you were starting to think like, is this his MO? And you go back a couple years ago, Garrett Thomas was, you know, very capable of doing what he did in 2018, but he always crashed. Something always happened. And, you know, that's why back in 2018, even when he was in the yellow jersey winning the stage up Alpe d'Huez, I was like, yeah, but something's Mm. still going to happen. And they finally broke, both of them broke through. And to see Richie on the podium, I mean, he is one of the best riders of his generation. He's won Tour Down Under, I don't know how many times. He's won Perry Nice. He's won every race out there. But for him to actually stand on the podium in Paris uh, at his age, being 34 years old, um, is is phenomenal because when when I was coaching him, he would come over to a, to to my house and my kids were really young, and you know they they would call him Little Richie. Like, how's Little Richie doing? How's Little Richie doing? And now, like when when he was on the podium in Paris, they were like, "Wait, 
is is that little Richie? So little Richie <laughs> definitely made some some huge strides, and I'm just happy to see him finally get the attention that he deserves being on the podium in Paris. That being said, with the rumors of him going to back to Ineos Grenade next year, um, I think it's the right thing. You know, mm. Richie, this was his kind of last hurrah, and he'll he'll be able to win races. There's no doubt those one week races, those two week races. But you know, his his GC ambitions uh, may be dictated a little bit more for him. But then again, they have a guy that that got third in the Tour de France, so that's another arrow that they have in their quiver. But from a personal standpoint, I couldn't have been more happy with for him and his family after so many heartbreaks in, in the Tour de France's past. And speaking of Ineos, what happened? It seemed like it was the demise of the team, right? It was obviously watching the Dauphiné. We knew that um, that Thomas, that Froome weren't in their top condition. Bernal looked to be there, but then he sort of mysteriously pulled out with a back injury. It felt as though they were never in the race even before it started. What do you? What happened? What happened to that team? Was it in their? It seemed just like everyone was off the ball. Man, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think there's anybody out there that knows, in, including Dave Brailsford. But you know, he made his selection. The one thing that I have to question is if Egon Bernal had to stop the Dauphiné because of a back issue. How do you let that happen? You have the biggest budget, you have the best staff, you have the best therapists, you have cutting edge of sports science. How could A, that happen, B, it not be looked after, and C, put all your eggs in one basket and have this guy that has an injury as your only guy? And yes, Karapas was their second fiddle. I mean, there were so many things that went wrong with this team. Pavel Siakov, like, basically almost not even finishing the first stage on the back foot the entire time. It was just a myriad. It was a nightmare scenario that they're not used to dealing with. But if I know that organization and Dave Brailsford and Tim Karras in the way I think I do, that's not going to happen again. And, you know, every once in a while, and I, I really like this quote that I read from from Brailsford is every once in a while, you need a kick in the balls. <laughs> and they, they've they had this in the past, but that was, I think, 2011 when... Bradley Wiggins crashed out of the Tour de France, and there really wasn't much to salvage after that. But then they came back and were, were dominant for you know seven out of eight years there. So for for me, that was a one off. That's not going to happen again. And it also gives them a reality check of hey, <laughs> th- there's more people in this race besides us, and they do seem to have the budget to 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 get the best riders. But having them all fit together and work together in a way is is the most crucial. But I think the thing that really derailed them what, from the start were, were all the crashes that they had. And there's no way you can predict that. And there's no way that you can blame anybody for that. But um, let's just say I, I'd be very surprised if that ever happened again. And so seeing right Bernal, the difference between him this year and last year was chalk and cheese. And knowing Tadek came out and won the race, this year, whilst, you know, definitely a favorite, but arguably there wasn't that pressure on him to be the favorite. And it was the same last year for Banal. I'm interested to, to hear your thoughts on like what changes for those riders. What's the difference between being someone like Tadak, who's an opportunist, takes advantage of the way the race is playing out as opposed to dictating the way the race plays out? How, what, what, what different challenges is, is he going to face next year and sort of using Bernal maybe as an example of, of that, that difference a bit of pressure makes? Things are going to be totally different for him. 
And I always say that second place and fourth place in the Tour de France is the, the, the best place to be until the finish, of course. And why do I say that? Number one, the guy in the leader's jersey has to deal with all the press, all the, the, the podium ceremonies. He's losing an hour to an hour and a half of recovery every single day. And the guy in second place, man, he's just happy, no stress, like, hey, I'm, I'm in second, ahead of third, and I'm just going to pick my, my, my opportunity and, and try to go for the win. Fourth place is the same thing because no one wants to finish fourth in the Tour de France. I mean, you want to be on that podium. So again, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. So outside of not being an outsider anymore, he's going to have to deal with the pressures like Egon Bernal. Like all of a sudden, he's, he's going to be doing commercials all winter. He's going to be, you know, at VIP events. He's going to be like, you know, a little doggy on a string sort of thing. And that, that's, Got to be tough. And at 22 years old, I think he turns 22 today. That's not the easiest thing to deal with. And that's why you have to respect these guys that can year after year after year perform on the world's biggest stage, on cycling's biggest stage, which is the Tour de France. But, you know, having the support team around him, I think he's very mature for a 22-year-old. But we said this about Egan last year as well. Just because you win one year doesn't mean you automatically win the next year, but people are going to expect that. And anything less than that is going to be a failure. That's where the mental part comes in, surrounding yourself with with level-minded people that have your best objectives in mind. Because, yeah, you're, you're going to be in everyone's crosshairs. And how do you deal with that at 22? Holy cow. Um, I can't imagine. It's going to be an interesting year for him next year. And, and as you said, Team Ineos will be somewhat renewed, I think. Same with Jumbo Visma. I think they'll take a long, hard look in the mirror. And I, I feel like that's only going to play to a more interesting race next year tell me before we get and that and that's my final question is predictions for the coming year but before we get there let's just touch on Froome and thomas are they going to get back into a position to challenge this new breed of grand tour rider are they over the hill you know what are your feelings about about those two bike riders and their absence from this year's race i think it's going to be difficult for both of them and they're probably two of my favorite riders ever um and i have the ultimate respect for them but this new generation of such young riders being kind of steered in the correct way of doing things, I think it's going to be really hard just from a recovery standpoint. Because when you're racing against guys that are 12 to 14 years younger than you, I mean, logic says they're going to be able to recover a little bit better. But you're talking about two of the hardest men in cycling. Chris obviously has a major objective and a big challenge ahead of him going to a new team. There's, you know, he's going to have to hit everything spot on. Can he do it? Absolutely. Garrett, you know, he's kind of in this, uh, this scenario where he's, even though he's won the tour, there's five other guys that have won grand tours on his team. How is that going to play mentally? You know, we saw a big change in Bradley Wiggins once he won the tour, like he kind of was like, Hey, I won the tour. I won the Olympic medal. I won basically everything I, I have. Like, kind of done it all. So is Garrett or Froomey going to come back with, like, really inspired? And knowing that they're kind of on the back foot already with the, all these young guys coming through, only time will tell. I mean, if anybody can do it, they can. But, man, uh, we said it since watching uh, Pogachar last year in the Tour of California. This guy, This guy's different. There's something different about him. And, you know, he's he's got many, many years ahead of him. But I think don't put too much pressure on him. Let him develop. Let him have fun. Let him be a 22-year-old. 
Um, the same thing with Sepp Kuss. I mean, we as Americans want to see a Grand Tour winner again. And is Sepp ready for that? I, I don't know. And he should be the one that determines if he's ready for that or not. Mm. I had a teammate, and then after I left the team, he stayed there at COVID. His name was David Moncoutier. This guy was either off the front winning stages in the tour or sitting caboose. He never wanted the pressure of being up there fighting for wheels. But when he did go, he he won multiple stages of the Tour de France. And they wanted, uh, all of a sudden, they were like, you know what? We're going to pay you as a leader, and you're going to be our GC hope for the future. Because he obviously had the ability to do it, but he didn't have the mental mindset to be able to be switched on from kilometer zero all the way to the end every single day, live like a monk. He actually, and I think he's the only person I've ever heard of doing this, he turned down basically tripling his salary to basically stay, hey, listen, pay me what you guys are paying me. Let me do my thing. I'm happy here. And he turned down a 3x augmentation of his contract. And he was able to kind of just finish out his career the way that he wanted to finish it. But giving giving somebody like Sepp or Tajay or any of these young guys mega pressure, you know, they always say more money, more problems. And and it is it is true. But I don't know anybody at this day and age that would turn down a, a three three X um augmentation to their salary. But <laughs> I just hope that these guys, that we as fans realize that they're human beings, that they're young men, and that they have to mature at in, in the way that they feel fit, not what we as armchair quarterbacks think they should do. Obviously a long way out, but I've got to ask it. Predictions for the coming year. Obviously you mentioned Froome is on a new team, relatively young team. We've seen the rise of Tadek and the, you know, now has a target on his back. We saw the return of Tom DeMullen. Um, we also saw the coming apart of, of Jumbo Visma, we'll, of Primoz Rogelik right in that final moment. And of course, we're going to see a revitalized Team Ineos. How do you see the race playing out next year? Do you see these same guys being in contention? I think that everything depends on the global issue that we're dealing with right now. A lot of these guys are older and they have a way of doing things, a way of preparing the races. And I have a feeling that the younger guys are a little bit more flexible and they can deal with a little bit more of these rando situations that they're thrown into. So there's no doubt that if we get back to normal, and racing starts in, in January with the Tour Down Under and then the normal calendar kind of kicks in again. I don't see any reason why all the these names, all these riders that you mentioned, all the, the guys that have been around before won't be ready. But I do think with a truncated season, with less racing, with less opportunity to, to go to training camps, that that kind of throws that older generation off their game a little bit. And the younger generation will, will, will come in. But I mean, all those names that you mentioned, they're, we know their names. We talk about them for a reason because they have amazing motors. They're amazingly professional. And there's just, there's just no telling. And that's the beautiful thing about cycling is that there is predictability is like zero from, from year to year. Like just seems like you win the tour. You know, everyone expects you to win the tour for the next five, six, eight, ten years in, in Tajay's uh, case, but that may not be the scenario. And we're, we're going to see more guys come out of the, the woodwork that take these leaders' positions. But to me, I would prefer to see the wealth of talent spread out a little bit more over all the teams. Because when you look at Ineos Grenadade, for example, they've got so many damn good guys that wouldn't it be cool to have one of those guys leading another team mm -hmm. and and have them all kind of competing instead of having 
Tom Demelin, who's one of the best riders in the world, riding tempo for with with three guys, uh, three teammates on his wheel up some of the climbs and then losing time. Wouldn't it be cool if he was on another team in a leadership position? But that's just the way the sport is. There's a lot of issues with with budgets. Some teams are are very uh, solid on that financial front, and then there's others that that are just kind of barely getting by. And you know, money talks in these situations, but. If we could find a way to kind of level the playing fields with with team budgets and go from there and have all these guys racing against each other instead of for each other, I think it would be even better for the future. I would 100% agree with you there, Bobby. And I think we can both agree that the last three weeks have been fantastic for cycling. Uh, It's been much needed in this, you know, in these bizarre times to have a race of this caliber take place to take place without any hiccups you know the 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 COVID protocols worked and it's been it's been really nice and really refreshing and and the rest of the season all crammed into the next few months I can't wait I think uh, maybe by the end of the year I'll be a little sick of bike racing but right now I'm thirsty for it so excited to see we've got the world's next weekend and then the Giro starts in a few weeks time so there's only more exciting stuff to come. Yeah, we had the World Championships, the Giro, the Vuelta, all the classics, and and that kind of goes into what's going to happen next year as well. If there's guys that you know didn't race until the Tour and now are doing so much at the end of the year, are they going to be burnt out so that they don't prepare correctly for for next year? I mean, it's it's a really quick turnover, and you know that that nice little off season is going to be a thing of the past. Who can absorb that workload and still be ready to race again next year? That's that's going to be another question. Mate, I think uh, I think that's it. I think that's the 2022 done and dusted. Yeah, it was a great one. That sounds like it's it for the time that we have for this week. Hope you enjoyed us talking about the special moments of the 2020 tour. It was a great one. You can find all of our past episodes as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. And please continue to show your support by subscribing to us and please spread the word by telling your friends. You can reach out to us on social media at that is Gus and at bobby.julik on Instagram. Please get in touch, suggestions, feedback. Give us your thoughts on the 2020 Tour de France and what you are excited about for the rest of the season. Again, thank you very much for tuning in. It has been an absolute pleasure over the last three weeks to bring you some a slightly different take on the Tour de France and then also inject our own personal thoughts on the race. So thank you so much for listening. This episode uh, is produced and edited by ed rogers so a big shout out to him thank you and yeah that's it for me until next week i'm angus morton thanks gus thanks everyone stay safe stay sane stay calm and don't forget to put your socks on (laughs) 